the Old Pilot's Plane Tales, an interview with Sir Glenn Torpy, Part 1. Knight Grand Cross of the Order of the Bath, Commander of the Order of the British Empire, Distinguished Service Order, and Order of the Legion of Merit, United States. Sir Glenn Torpy has held many military posts, such as Station Commander RAF Bruggen, Assistant Chief of Staff at the Permanent Joint Headquarters in Northwood, the Director of Air Operations at the Ministry of Defence, Air Officer Commanding No. 1 Group, Air Component Commander for Operation Telic, Chief of Joint Operations at Northwood, the Chief of Staff and Aide-de-Camp to Her Majesty the Queen. When I list his achievements, which include that of the most senior post within the Royal Air Force, the 28th to hold the position, it's easy to forget that Sir Glenn wasn't magically elevated to these remarkable positions and ranks. Like all Air Force pilots, he trained like everyone else. He served on a squadron as a junior pilot and progressed as many others have done before. He even fought in the Gulf War, and it's this part of his career that I want to concentrate on. I was delighted when he agreed to talk to us on the Airline Pilot Guy show and recount some of the more interesting parts of his career. He's going to tell all sorts of tall tales about his life in the Air Force. So, um, Glenn, first of all, thanks very much indeed for uh, letting us all listen to you and uh, hear your stories. Um, could you perhaps start by uh, telling us as a youngster what drew you to a career in the Air Force? Well, first of all, Nick, thanks very much for um, uh, inviting me to, to talk to your listeners. Um, well, I come from an Air Force background. My great-grandfather was in the Royal Flying Corps right at the very end of the First World War, and my father was in the Air Force. So there was sort of a natural inclination to, to join the service, I suppose. But in reality, um, I didn't want to sort of walk just in father's and grandfather's footsteps. So I was interested in aeroplanes, naturally. I went off to university to study aeronautical engineering with the intention, actually, of going into the aerospace industry. But having got my degree um, from Imperial, um, went around the aircraft industry trying to sell my wares in my third year and you know, came to the conclusion that whilst there were some fantastic jobs to, to do and a fantastic career to be had in engineering, um, it probably wasn't going to be for me. And if I'm honest, I didn't think I'd get into the Air Force. Um, I'd either fail the medical or I wouldn't achieve the aptitude um, standards. But anyway, I decided to have a go at it and surprised myself and everybody else, I think, and was accepted for pilot training. So that's really the, the way I got into it. When you uh, joined up, did you have an idea of where you wanted to be when you finished your career? No, absolutely not. And lots of people say, you know, did you ever think you'd end up with, as chief of the air staff? And absolutely not. I think virtually everybody who joins the service, um, they, they join, well, I joined because I wanted to fly aeroplanes. And the day I left the Air Force, I still enjoyed flying aeroplanes. And I had no aspiration but to get through flying training, get onto my first squadron. And, and that you know, that was my horizon at that stage. Now, I wonder if you could just briefly describe the flying training you went through. 
Well, I'd never, I think I'd flown a couple of trips in a chipmunk when I was a, an air cadet, but I'd never had any flying training at all until I joined the Air Force. So I did my 10 hours primary flying grading on a on chippy, which was fairly hair-raising as a youngster, to be quite honest. Um, yeah, I remember, remember those days. <laughs> and then having got through that, went straight on to the good old Jet Provost um, and did my basic flying training on that. Then having got through that, first of all, on the Mark 3A, then the Mark 5. Um, then went on to the NAT up at Valley to do advanced flying training. Got through that and then down to Broadie on Tactical Weapons School on the Hunter. And so it was a pretty conventional flying training. We were quite lucky at that stage in that there weren't many holes going through training so uh, it was a fairly sort of seamless process but still took um, by the time I I joined in September 74 and it was July July 78 by the time I got to my first frontline squadron so nay on four years. Now as a student pilot were there any of the flying prizes which you didn't actually win? Quite a lot, actually. <laughs> no, I mean, it was... I was just fortunate at the end of the day. Um, now, I think the cream rises to the top. You must have worn out a couple of pairs of shoes on your walks up to the stage to pick up yet another piece of silver. Now, from your uh, course at Broadie, um, where were you posted? I went off to um, the Jaguar. So, I suppose, when I was... Going through the tactical weapons school when you were thinking about which frontline aircraft you you were going to go on to, I'd actually held on 41 Phantom Squadron between advanced flying training and Broadie. And the recce role of 41 Phantom were actually a, predominantly a recce squadron, but actually they did strike attack at the same time. And I was really sort of attracted to the role. So when it came to um, deciding where to, or hopefully to go, I said, well, I'd like to go to the Jaguar, and I'd specifically like to go to the um, stri- the, uh, the recce squadron. And that's actually how it turned out. Went up to Lossie Mouse on the OCU, and then I was posted down to Coltishall um, on 41 Squadron. Uh, squadron had recently formed. We were about 18 months into the the squadron's life and could not have asked for a, a, a better bunch of people, but also a better role as well. Now, that's an interesting choice because uh, most of us going through the fast jet world, I think, dreamed of being fighter pilots. Uh, why recce? Well, I think it goes back to what I said, Nick, that 41 Phantom was a strike attack and a, a recce squadron, although the primary role was recce. But you know, they, they'd achieved the distinction of winning, winning the tactical bombing competition, although it was only their secondary role. And uh, we were trying to achieve exactly the same on 41 Jaguar. We were part of the Ace Mobile Force, so our deployment base, and you've got to remember this is 1978, so the back end of the Cold War. Um, our deployment base was up in North Norway, a place called Bardafoss. Some of the best flying I've you know, ever done. Um, and we got around the world at the end of the day. It was, you know, it was a fantastic uh, it was a fantastic role, and the good old Jaguar, although it was maligned by lots of people, actually was a really good aeroplane and great to fly a single-seater as well. Absolutely. I, actually, I was just about to ask you what it was like to fly. I think you've answered that question. After your tour uh, on Jags, uh, where did you go next? 
Um, well, I, I thought I was going to go across to our sister squadron at Larbrook, so two squadron, which was the other recce squadron. But actually, I was posted off to um, RF Brody back as a weapons instructor um, on the Hawk. So Hawk was just coming into service at um, the Tactical Weapons School. So there's a mix of of hunters and hawks. And I was actually posted to 79 Squadron, which used to um, refresh people coming through uh, as station commanders or squadron commanders. So actually, on reflection, although I was not very happy initially of going down there, it was a brilliant job. Um, And I also, halfway through my tour, was given command of the um, QY course as well, so running the QY courses. So, you know, a typical day would be you go off to the range, you'd go and do a 2v2, and and then maybe off to another um, range sortie or a sap sortie with a with a four-ship and a bounce. So, you know, absolutely fantastic flying, to be quite honest. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot from these older guys coming through, more experienced guys coming through who... Probably only took about four or five trips before they were back up to the standard they were three years ago when they finished their their, their previous flying tour. So even though they were, in theory, the students, uh, they were still able to pass on some good gen? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I, I learned a huge amount in that three years. Brilliant. From there, you went on to the Tornado. Was that your choice? Well, I went back to the Jaguar. So uh, having finished Broadly. I went back as a flight commander on 41. Um, then after that, went off to do two, two grand tours. One a year as, um, on the RAF presentation team, which was actually a very interesting job. Well, that must account for your fine speaking voice. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I did staff college. And then out of staff college, I uh, slipped through the net and was promoted. And I was given 13 squadrons. So... That was the final tornado squadron which had formed, and the squadron had been disbanded about uh, 10 years before it had been a Canberra squadron. So I was in a really fortunate position of starting a squadron from absolute scratch again. Um, And again, in the recce role, but with a a secondary uh, attack role as well. When you form a squadron from scratch with a brand new aeroplane, that's a bit of a steep hill to climb, isn't it? In some ways, but actually, you know, it was a a great chance to shape the squadron in the way that you'd like it to to end up. And we we were really lucky. We got brand new Bat 7 tornadoes, picked them up from the factory at Wharton. They had about five hours on the clock. Um, Because they were the latest batch, they were much more reliable than some of the earlier um, aircraft. We had a brand new hardened aircraft shelter um, site at RAF Honington. Um, so all the infrastructure was fantastic. And I mean, the other feature of the, the recce tornado was we had brand new state-of-the-art reconnaissance equipment, which was all um, infrared line scan. So we had three sensors, a vertical infrared line scan, two sideways looking infrared line scans and it was all digitally the imagery was all digitally recorded so that you could replay the imagery in the air and the backseater could review the imagery and then data link that to the ground that of course is if it was all working yeah well it was a problem (laughs) which at the start it wasn't 
No, fair enough. Now, not all of us are QIs. Could you put your QI hat back on for a second and just explain what infrared line scan is? Well, basically, rather than using um, photographic uh, sensors, the reason that the tornado had gone down the infrared line scan was that the aircraft was was designed to work um, during the Cold War. The assumption it was that we would be flying at low altitude in poor weather and at night. And you obviously need uh, an infrared sensor to be able to operate at night. So that that's exactly how the sensors were, were designed. They were optimized to operate at, at low altitude, so two, at 200 feet. Um, and optimized to work, to work at night as well. And that's where the, the tornado's niche was. Excellent. Now, the Air Force had acquired that with a view to operating during the Cold War or a wider uh, theater in mind? No, it, it, I mean, tornado was very much uh, designed around uh, the Cold War scenario of operating in, um, in Europe, poor weather, and the reason we went down the two-seat role was it was felt that the pilot would have his work cut out operating the aircraft at night, low altitude. So you put most of the navigation and the weapons system into the back seat. And that was a, it was a really good division of labor, um, which you only really saw, to be quite honest, when you operated the aircraft in poor weather and at night. Brilliant. Now, Glenn, your squadron had a great history. Uh, in fact, um, it's got a, a lovely emblem, which uh, I think is commonly referred to as a stabbed cat. Perhaps you could tell us a little about that. Yeah, well, it, when we were putting the squadron together, you know, we were deciding on what the emblem was going to be on the fin of the aircraft and what badges, you know, all the normal stuff you do as a, as a, a newly formed squadron. And the emblem of the squadron was a sword and a shield, and a lynx head. And that's effectively uh, you know, how we put it together. And it did, did look like a stabbed cat at the end of the day. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm glad I managed to get that question in. Now, here's the meat of it, um, Glenn. Um, how did you get involved in the Gulf War and, and what stage did you got to in your uh, build-up um, on the squadron when that occurred? Well, we... The initial cadre of people for the squadron formed in October of 89, and the squadron actually formed in the January of 1990. Um, so we picked up our 12 single-seaters, uh, 12 um, operational aircraft, and we had one T-Bird, which was an older aircraft. And formed the squadron, started you know, gradually working the whole squadron up. We had quite a an eclectic mix of people on the squadron. So we'd drawn people from different recce backgrounds, some tornado guys, some single seat guys from the Jaguar force as well. So we had a, a good blend of people and some young first tourists as well. So we had a good blend of people. Um, but the main thing was, you know, how do we get the recce equipment working as quickly as we um, possibly could? So we worked very much um, with industry to see you know, how we could get this new embryonic kit going. So we spent the first sort of six months doing exactly that. And then you'll remember, Nick, that Saddam marches into Kuwait in August of 1990. And like any good squadron commander, you thought, well, I need a bit of this action somehow. So we managed to persuade um, the AOC, uh, the Air Office Commander, one group, that 
although we, no one was committed to the operation at that stage, that we should at least start working up for it. So for that, we spent our time doing 100 foot flying um, during the day. And then at night, we were able to go and practice our terrain following um, capability. And we were allowed to fly around the UK uh, down to 250 feet, which in normal peacetime, we were not allowed to do. You were limited to just 500 feet for safety and noise reasons as well. So in, in many respects, that period from August up to Christmas, and it was fa just fantastic training, to be honest. And then the kit was improving by, by the day as well, but you know, not hugely reliable, if I'm, if I'm honest. So what then happened was, as Christmas came up, it was clear that an operation probably was going to happen of some description. And you know, some, of the, some tornado squadrons, the mud-moving uh, squadrons, had already been deployed out to the Gulf. Uh, we had Jaguars out in the Gulf as well. Um, and I was asked by, um, by Strike Command, would I go out to Riyadh uh, and talk to the US about what the Tornado um, GR1As might be able to do in the recce role because of its unique night recce capability. And uh, the judgment was that whilst, whilst the kit may not be as re reliable as we would ultimately like it, there was potential for us to provide a niche capability which would be valuable to the coalition. But it was all pretty late in the day at this stage, so we eventually um, deployed a combined detachment of two squadron, which was uh, our sister squadron in Larbrook, and ourselves, and we deployed uh, and ended up at Dharan um, about a week before the war started. We will leave it there until next week when Sir Glenn describes some of the work his squadron did in the Gulf War and some of his personal recollections from missions he flew, some of which made my hair stand on end. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show Aviation Podcast. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.